Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Hi, welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. Today I'm joined by Dr. Lorenzo Cohen, who's a clinical professor of cancer prevention and the director of the Integrative Medicine Program at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He is a founding member and past president of the Society of Integrative Oncology and the former vice chair of the Academic Consortium of Integrative Medicine and Health. Dr. Cohen is a leading researcher in integrative oncology, especially as it pertains to stress and mind-body interventions like yoga. He's joined by Allison Jeffries, who is an educator and has a master's in educational psychology. Together, they have written a wonderful book called Anti-Cancer Living, Transform Your Life and Health with the Mix of Six. Today, we'll be talking about their book and some of the most important topics within the book. We'll also touch on research and stress and how lifestyle can modify the tumor microenvironment. Hello, welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. I'm happy to be joined by my friend and colleague, Lorenzo Cohen, and his wife, Allison Jeffries. Welcome, guys. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thrilled to be with you today. Well, thank you. I think this is probably the only time that we're going to have a husband and wife on together. So let's start there. Uh, I'm curious as to how you guys met and how you started this journey together on Integrative Oncology. Well, I was working as an educator and knew Lorenzo's mother, who then proceeded to invite me over for dinner and a movie uh, and told her son that a colleague from work was coming over. So in many ways, it was an arranged meeting uh, that proved successful. And uh, we dated for two years and then ended up getting married uh, and found our way to Houston, where Lorenzo was working at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And he was doing this very interesting research on cancer and lifestyle. And many other physicians and PhDs were also doing that work, uh, both at MD Anderson and around the world. And he would come home and talk about the interesting research going on. And we would discuss it at dinner. And then we started having children. And we realized that there were so many tools that we could provide them uh, with you know, regarding cancer and lifestyle. And so we started to do a lot of work with them and filling their toolbox in how to live a healthy way. And then we realized we weren't really living that lifestyle and started to make change um, in our own group of friends and in our community. And we realized that there was this vast amount of knowledge under what is the umbrella of cancer and lifestyle. And that people, it was hard for people to have that full understanding of what the science says and then what you could do to make change in your own life. And, and what was so surprising to me was actually how little people knew 
about the role of lifestyle and cancer, in particular cancer prevention, but even after a diagnosis of cancer. The same types of recommendation that we may think about for diabetes and heart disease um, that, that are more accepted and, and our friends and colleagues kind of understood. They had no idea that those same factors were relevant uh, to, to prevent cancer. So how did it come to be that you guys decided to write a book? Was it something that happened organically? Is it something you guys been discussing for a long time? Um, I think that it kind of came, it was organic really, because we had been giving the talks and uh, doing workshops and just realized that there was a real need for this information. And Lorenzo had been a colleague and collaborator with David Servan Schreiber, and you know, who'd written anti-cancer, so it was a logical step. And what, what was really needed, we felt, in the literature was not only an update, because the latest version of, of anti-cancer was published in 2009, and unfortunately David died in 2011. Um, so we're talking about, you know, a book that's now over 10 years old, certainly in terms of uh, what, what the data represents. Um, but also to take it, you know, one step further, not only showing the evidence, which David did so well, but trying to be more prescriptive. What are the tools and, and actual recommendations that, that we can give? So each of the six primary uh, chapters has, has a section on anti-cancer living. What would you do to get started in each of the six areas? So let me ask you about David Servan Schreiber, um, you know, in the landmark book that he wrote, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. You knew him, Lorenzo. Can you tell us a little bit about him and how he started his journey and got motivated to write what is a book that many, many, many people have found very valuable? Yeah, so, so David's story is quite remarkable. I actually met him in... Um, 2009 introduced to David through our president, uh, then Dr. John Mendelson, who sat on a, a, a panel with him at uh, Davos at the World Economic Summit. It was a panel on health. And, and John, who's not easily impressed because he has such high standards, was just blown away by David and the message. And in fact, you know, when, when you know, you hear the message and you know, now shifting, you know, you read our book, you hear our presentation, the data is so compelling and overwhelming. And even somebody like Dr. Mendelssohn, who is so embedded in cancer, kind of came away thinking, wow, I, I had no idea. Um, and so John encouraged us to invite David to come and give a talk, to meet him, to hear his message. And uh, there, was, there was kind of a, an immediate... Uh, alignment of vision and purpose when when I met David you know we were both born in Europe and have European sensibilities and and have been um, kind of believing in the same message and wanting to document it in a more substantive way the link between lifestyle and and, and certainly cancer prevention, but importantly, since I work in a cancer center, improving cancer outcomes. So we embarked on a, on a very ambitious fundraising campaign to be able to raise money to do a 
comprehensive lifestyle clinical trial here at MD Anderson and with David's support before he died we were able to raise uh, over five million dollars and launched and have now completed and currently doing data analyses uh, RCT of 100 women with breast cancer to be able to, to actually change their uh, probability of, of recurrence of disease, long-term survivor, and we essentially collected everything under the sun. Um, and so... And, and getting know, back what, to David, he had, he had brain cancer, right? And he was able to live with brain cancer for 19 years, is that correct? So what's quite remarkable about David's story is that he, you know, was a very successful researcher at the University of Pittsburgh doing research in uh, neuroscience and mental health. And one day um, when they had uh, set up for a patient to get an MRI, the patient didn't show up. and and getting time on the MRI is not only rare, but it's also quite expensive. So instead of wasting that valuable time, they thought they would run a couple of uh, test experiments. So David jumped in the magnet, and they started scanning his brain. And at that point, um, they noticed that there was something in there that shouldn't be. Um, and that's how we discovered that he had uh, a brain tumor. And wow. he underwent conventional treatment um, and then went back to his, you know, crazy academic life and not taking care of himself as we often do in academia. And then he had a recurrence of disease. And at that point, he um, started to think about, you know, what more can I do? He, of course, underwent conventional treatment at the time of his recurrence but then discovered this whole world of lifestyle and cancer that nobody told him about and it's just not part of the standard of care, how he should be eating and exercising and aspects of stress and environmental toxins. Um, and so he sought out and searched all this information on his own and then um, continued on and when people who he was exposed to realized he had this knowledge base that really wasn't out there in one place. There's of course books on uh, mindfulness and there was books on the harms of the environment uh, for cancer, but not everything in one place. And so, you know, all of that library work he, he put to good use in, in the publication of uh, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life. That's fascinating. Um, so he wrote this book and as you said, um, it's been 10 years and there's been a lot that's, uh, that's been researched and understood since then. Um, so how did you guys go about, uh, thinking about how to update that? And you added a couple different sections. So I want to, I want to hear from you about, about the book itself. And it's a fantastic book for anybody out there. It's called Anti-Cancer Living. Um, it's something I recommend all the time. And tell us a little bit about, about that process and about the basic um, setup of the book, which talks about six pillars of health. So the six pillars of health, what we call the mix of six, are love and support, stress, stress management, sleep, 
exercise, diet, and environmental exposures and trying to decrease your environmental exposures. And those are, are, I guess, what you could say are the six main lifestyle areas that there is enough evidence linking them to cancer and, importantly, cancer-related biological processes that independently as well as together will lead to, to decreasing risk of, of developing cancer in the first place. And there's ample evidence to show that they're also associated with outcomes after a diagnosis of cancer. So the, the real challenge in, in putting this book together was that each of the six areas could be a book unto itself. Um, and so it was trying to strike the right balance of how much data and evidence is necessary and important to share with the readership, understanding that it's uh, a lay readership and, and this book wasn't written directly for a, an academic audience. Um, and importantly, having a, enough information on okay, you know, I, you, you've sold me, I know diet's important, now just tell me what to do and how to do it. Um, and, and it was, you know, it's hard to strike that right balance. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've read the book and I think it's a, a really good overview of um, how somebody who's diagnosed with cancer, especially how, what their mindset should be, uh, because it's obviously overwhelming and um, I think you guys do an excellent job of these are all the different areas and this is why. And then you mix in a lot of um, personal stories and people that you know just to kind of hit home. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's something that's easy to read. Um, you know, one of the things that I, that I uh, found really interesting in the book and it's one of the reasons I got into integrative oncology in the first place is you talk about the helplessness that people feel when they're diagnosed with cancer and how some of these strategies can actually empower somebody to make changes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, the, the goal with the book is to give people the tools to make their bodies as inhospitable to cancer as possible. And, you know, back to what you were just saying, we so often think about our health or areas that we need to improve in our health as being one area or another. That if I just could lose that 20 pounds or if I just could start exercising or maybe if I learned how to meditate that everything would be well. And you know when you get a cancer diagnosis or even if you don't have a cancer diagnosis it's very good to be able to view your health in a much more holistic way and realize that it incorporates you know these six areas uh, to focus on so it means that you have areas that you're doing you know well in that are stable let's say and then you have areas that uh, you know you need to build up and areas that are in transition and so it gives you an opportunity to um, not focus in a negative fashion but to try and build that positive contagion that we talk about which is that instead of you know sleeping poorly waking up and eating a you know a not a nutritious breakfast skipping exercise 
etc., that you can sleep well, wake up and eat a healthy breakfast, you know, decide to have a walking meeting, it, it builds that positive contagion. And in the, in, in the cancer world, as you know, there's so much that's done to you. And uh, as you noted, there is this, this sense of, of lack of control. And, you know, what's important to know when, when you realize the vast amount of data that's out there about lifestyle and what you can do, is there is so much that patients can do to modify their outcomes, at a minimum to improve their quality of life. And we know that, for example, exercise is, is the go-to treatment to help combat cancer-related fatigue, both acutely as well as chronically. Um, and then the list goes on in, in all these other uh, areas of, of the mix of six. And so this gives patients uh, a sense of autonomy and control and that they're active participants in, in the treatment and disease process. And, and far too often, well-intentioned physicians who you know, don't want to put burden and undue stress on a patient uh, misinterpret when the patient says, is there anything more that I can do? And they want to reassure them, oh, don't worry, we've got this. You don't have to do anything. And in fact, not only is that not the right message based on the evidence and the science, but it's also taking something away from the patients that they're actually seeking uh, to get more engaged and to be active. And it's something that you know, when you get that diagnosis, you absolutely are overwhelmed with just the actual cancer piece. And this is where your community comes in. Your loved ones can come in to try and help you reach that place where you are, you know, able to take control of the things that you actually can control. Yeah, I, I, I find that, especially, you know, going through the treatment process many times physicians will just take over and we have this metaphor that it's like a war you know there's a war on cancer and you know let's let's kill the cancer and attack from all sides and you know at some point even if you are successful in that battle then you're left with something that still needs to be regulated and that is for that individual who's gone through this journey to then, you know, pick up the pieces and say, this is who I am now and feel whole in some way. And I think the less helpless that they are and the more engaged that they are, then the more that I think that transition is not met with, um, with just a, a feeling of emptiness sometimes, you know, that, you know, I don't, I don't know where to, where to go next because we've, we've just kind of taken over. That's what I feel uh, happens a lot. And that's when, when those metaphors of war are used and many patients do not like them. It, there is an end to it, and like you're saying, and really it's a, 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 it's a process of living and, um, and, and living in different ways with a cancer diagnosis and through it and beyond. So um, it's very important to give people the opportunity to take charge of what they can and to make lifelong changes, no matter what the outcomes are. Well, and, and the reality with cancer, which is arguably different than, than many other diseases, it is something that has gone wrong with 
our cells. It's not a virus. It's not an invader from the outside. Um, it is something that has gone wrong with our own bodies, with the way our cells are replicating and dividing. So, you know, if you were to really think about, you know, what does that war metaphor mean? Well, you're having a war against yourself. And we want to turn that metaphor around and start to focus more on, you know, what is it that we can do, as Allison was saying, to make your body as inhospitable to cancer as possible. Because we all have mutating cells in our body all uh, the time. Um, and the key is whether that mutated cell is allowed to grow and thrive and we create a hospitable environment for it to turn into a, a mass of cells that we call cancer and threaten our lives, or whether the multiple processes um, that are called the cancer hallmarks are kept at bay so that that cell can't continue to grow and thrive. And what we, we spend some time on in the book is explaining this biology to the reader. You know, what is cancer? How does it form? What are these key cancer hallmarks? Because each of the mix of six is linked with key biological processes that will either allow our, our body to, to, to let that cell grow out of control or ideally to check it uh, the way it is supposed to and keep things at bay. And this is equally true for preventing disease as well as, importantly, after a diagnosis to, to keep yourself cancer-free or, in the case that uh, cure is not possible, to at least control the disease for as long as possible and then hopefully it's something else that, that uh, is, is the cause of death and not the cancer. Well, you know, we obviously don't focus enough on prevention especially in, um, in the West, um, in America. So, you know, how much of this, how much, how, how much can we prevent cancer? You know, um, obviously there's genetics. You talk about this in the book as well, that sometimes there are risk factors that are carried forward from multiple generations in the past um, or, you know, uh, exposures that you might have had in utero, for example, that you have nothing nothing you can do about it when you get to be an adult. How much can you um, uh, determine for yourself your risk for cancer and how much can you do to prevent cancer? Well, the actual uh, statistics somewhat vary by cancer, but it's estimated that at least 50% of cancers could be prevented if people modify some key lifestyle factors. And uh, the big ones are, of course, uh, smoking and tobacco-related behavior, which accounts for at least 35% of cancers. And then the area of diet, exercise, obesity uh, accounts for another 30% of cancers. There's the virally-mediated uh, cancers, human papillomavirus, which is uh, that you get due to risky sexual behaviors. Sun exposure, excessive sunburns under the age of 20 accounts for increasing your rate of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers by 80%. So alcohol, alcohol is, is now classified as a carcinogen linked with a dozen different cancers. So it, it's clear that the majority of cancers 
our lifestyle linked. And in fact, when we look at the inherited cancers, so this would be that you're inheriting a gene mutation from your parents, which will increase your, your susceptibility to developing cancer in your lifetime. That accounts for only about 5 to 10% of cancers. So the vast majority are either due to these lifestyle factors that I've just described, or uh, there is the reality of random chance. Uh, the more cells are replicating, the higher the chance that an abnormality can happen. And again, if that's not checked by multiple biological processes, then it can grow out of control. Uh, but again, uh, the vast majority are linked to these uh, behavioral preventable causes. And these same factors we know influence outcomes after somebody has a diagnosis. And again, some cancers are more sensitive to these lifestyle factors than others. Something to add to that is that it's really important to remember that if you get a cancer diagnosis, that leaving blame, shame, and guilt behind. Uh, you know, you, you need to start from exactly where you are at this moment and move forward. Those emotions are not productive to improving your health. And at some point, it doesn't really matter what caused your cancer, and you'll never know definitively what caused a cancer. So you may need to circle back to some of those emotions later on in, in your healing process, but it's really important to step forward uh, in a positive um, way and leaving those emotions behind. Right. I, I agree with you because it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a certain balance that you have to strike in telling somebody, yes, I, I do think after you're done with your treatment, we should talk about weight loss. Um, smoking is a much easier conversation. I think most people who have a smoking-related cancer um, kind of know that they should stop smoking and that if it didn't directly cause their cancer, it, it added to the risks. So that that's a pretty clear uh, conversation to have. Um, so let's talk about where you start. And so you guys chose to start on social well-being <clears throat> as the first pillar of health. So I've, I found that fascinating. And can you talk a little bit about why you feel that's the case? So love and support is the foundational piece to accomplishing all lifestyle change that you might want to make. And we can all identify with just, you know, saying, okay, so if I need to work on my weight or I want to learn, you know, develop an exercise routine, so you decide that tomorrow you're going to go and sign up at the gym or even go to the gym and buy, you know, there's donuts in the, the break room with celebration for party at lunch, friends want to meet after work, you know, it, life rolls on and then you feel defeated and those guilt, blame, shame emotions come up. And so what we think is very important is to back up and to build your social, uh, your social support team. And when you have that team in place, then you step forward with the lifestyle change that you're interested in. So building that team, 
They're, they can be people who you are close to, because we know that one person cannot be everything for you, cannot do everything for you. And you don't need to have a lot of really good friends, a couple of close friends, uh, some colleagues at work, somebody at your church. Uh, you can go online and volunteer. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways in which you can extend yourself and develop in these areas. Uh, uh, with your team in place, but that's the critical factor. So, so let me ask a question, because as an integrative oncologist and a medical oncologist, there are times where some of the most emotional interactions I've had are with people who get diagnosed and their life kind of falls apart. You know, I've had, I've had patients of mine where a spouse leaves them because they can't um, deal with the support uh, part of their, of, of their relationship or they find that there's nobody to lean on, that they really don't have good friends. So what do you do if those kind of things happen? You know, other than seeing a therapist, which, you know, we, we do use a lot of psychological assistance, but what do, you, what do you do if your life is just going in that direction or you have a bad marriage or, you know, those kind of things? I think that what needs to be one of the first steps that somebody would look at if they're in that situation, which is incredibly difficult, right? Not only have you got that cancer diagnosis, but you can see, you know, your life falling apart. And that is to find one person in your life who you can articulate that you need support from to, in order to build the other areas. So if you can find one person who will help you get in touch with the support groups around the kind of cancer you potentially have that you can participate in, that can help you uh, tap into the resources that potentially your hospital or healthcare system provides to drive you to treatments and to try and pick up the slack in that area. If you have children, other parents who might be able to step in and help you out. I think that the key is finding that one point person who you can articulate to and maybe that's uh, you know through your church or your synagogue or your mosque you know, somebody who can rally a group of people to help step in, to bridge you through this time and to help put into place those supports. And it's that, that multi-pronged approach that Allison's talking about starts to, to take some of, of the pressure off. So it's not going to fix all of the issues and problems. But once you start taking some of the pressure off and getting support in some areas, then it makes it easier to do the hard work, you know, with a therapist and and others to be able to come up with a plan on on how to move forward. And then, how do you think that um, the cancer community and cancer centers can help? You know, you mention in the book how some people live in fear or are in unsafe uh, situations for a variety of reasons. Maybe don't have um, financial support to get through all of this. I mean, we all see these kind of things. If this is really such an important foundation to have some social uh, support and a team and, and social well-being, how can we all help people to at least be on some solid ground? So I think, you know, the first step is, is acknowledging and sharing with the patient how important this is. So, you know, in fact, you know, none of the mix of six is typically talked about with patients and physicians are even 
reluctant to talk about a patient's weight for fear of, of shaming them and having that, the fat conversation. Um, but in the area of support, you know, doing a, a kind of assessment, um, you know, early on, and, and I just, we described this in the book, early on when I came to MD Anderson was starting a pre-surgical stress management study with my urology colleagues. One of the urologists said to me that he knows when a patient comes into his consult and they're by themselves, they're kind of pessimistic, down in blue, that they won't live as long. And, you know, I knew that as a research psychologist. That's what I had been studying and why I came to MD Anderson. Um, and it floored me that, you know, just from anecdotal experience, this surgeon was actually seeing that. So, you know, that needs to be acknowledged to the patients, the importance of being part of your community. And that can mean so many different things. You know, even the spinster can get connected with a volunteer organization, a support group, um, to mention something online, a, a kind of hobby where you meet other people and you're uh, connected to something bigger than yourself. That's ultimately what ends up being critically uh, important. But also, you know, like you're saying, one of the challenges is that everybody in society needs to recognize that when somebody is going facing something uh, as traumatic as a cancer diagnosis, that we need to be paying attention and looking for signs that people need additional support. You know, rallying around people, not only a cancer diagnosis, you know, we're all faced with so many different crises in our lives. And it's about stepping up when you see that somebody is in need and making sure that that they are so properly socially supported. Um, you know, people who are elderly who do live alone are particularly vulnerable because they do not have somebody to reach out to. And that's where we as a community and a society need to recognize more and more that the small things that we can do to help somebody really make a difference. And an example of this from, from the book is uh, a patient who we interviewed who after her breast cancer diagnosis was, was doing pretty well in, in the area of diet and exercise and um, had, had kind of gone to an, almost an extreme level in particular in the area of exercise and doing races and all of that. Uh, but her, her, somebody within her friend group noticed that she wasn't doing so well from, from, I guess you could say, a mental health perspective and was kind of down and blue and, and struggling in that area. And, you know, they bravely got together and instead of, you know, having a party or giving a typical gift, you would think, to, for an individual, they got her uh, three sessions of psychotherapy. Um, and so, you know, she went for it and, and, and tried these sessions um, and it was, it was transformational and was the pivot point. And she continues to work with uh, this therapist today and is uh, thriving. Well, uh, the other thing you talk about a lot is, um, is helping others while you're, you know, after a diagnosis, whether it's through volunteering or through other means. C can you talk about the importance of, of that and, and what that gives you? 
So there's there's what we call the I, I guess the indirect effects of social support, and then what could be viewed as more the direct effects. So the indirect effects are what we've talked about, where you uh, can rely on a team to help you be successful um, in in the changes you want to make. This more direct effect of social support, which includes uh, the giving of yourself and being part of something bigger than yourself, actually has an impact on on gene expression profiles, so how our genes are actually behaving. And of course, cancer is a disease predominantly of, of genes that are not behaving properly. And individuals who volunteer and um, get their their well-being and engage in what what are called these eudaimonic behaviors or eudaimonic well-being, where your you, your sense of purpose in life. Um, and your happiness is, is derived outside of, of yourself, that individuals engaging in more eudaimonic uh, behaviors have decreased inflammatory gene profiles, improvement in immune function, um, and many of the, the cancer hallmark-related genes are actually down-regulated, and genes are up-regulated that are associated with better health and well-being. And you um, differentiate that from more like the pleasure-seeking kind of happiness, that this more kind of joy in giving uh, spirit has has more of an effect on, on your epigenetics and and your, your, your inflammation and those kind of things. Yeah, and those are probably two good words to use to describe this. Um, and we don't want to get, you know, too... Uh, you know, metaphysical here, but the difference between um, joy versus happiness, uh, eudaimonic well-being, again, where you're getting uh, happiness from things that are bigger than yourself versus hedonic well-being, which is more focusing on, on, on the self and, and pleasure-seeking. Now, you know, people who are engaging in hedonic well-being tend to have better well-being and quality of life than individuals who uh, aren't seeking their well-being in any shape or form. Uh, but it's really trying to get people pushed towards, you know, the purpose in life and uh, following, you know, their core values and, and things like that, that that we see actually the evidence in cancer patients. Uh, is is associated with epigenetic changes favoring better health. And if we can identify our core values while going through this process and focus in on the way in which we want to really live our lives, then we can be you know a lot more successful and focused on the lifestyle changes that we want to make and bringing purpose to our life, which is really critically for our well-being. Thank you. I, I want to transition a little bit to kind of the next pillar, and that's an area that, um, Lorenzo, I know you focused on for most of your career is, is the impact of stress and cancer. Um, so for those of us who have, haven't heard you talk before, can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about negative stress and um, and how it can affect you uh, when you've been diagnosed with cancer. 
So all stress is negative from a biological perspective. The question is, how long does it last? So an acute stress episode is actually adaptive and a good thing. And evolutionarily speaking, this was something that helped us fight or flee, right? This, this hardwired uh, acute fight or flight response. And it's a, a release of stress hormones, an increase in heart rate and blood pressure. Our platelets will, will activate and you'll be clotting at a faster rate, which again is good if you are going to be, you know, uh, caught by the predator. Now, the stress response we experience during chronic situations is an identical response and it is actually no longer adaptive. So, you know, stressful relationships, even the, uh, although it's, it's benign, it's been shown to be uh, harmful to our health, the stress of commuting, uh, difficult relationships, of course being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness like cancer uh, is extremely stressful. What we know from, from now decades of research is that the sympathetic nervous system arousal, which is characteristic of the stress response, our body being flooded with these stress hormones, actually makes the tumor microenvironment more hospitable to cancer growth. And the cancer cells themselves actually have uh, beta receptors on the surface. And norepinephrine in particular will bind to these beta receptors and the cells will uh, proliferate more. Stress actually we know activates all the cancer hallmarks. It increases angiogenesis, which is the formation of new blood vessels. It decreases cell-mediated immunity aspects of the immune system that are critically important for controlling cell uh, growth. It leads to DNA damage, which increases your risk of cancer uh, in the first place. It leads to uh, telomere attrition, which is telomeres are on the end of every chromosome in our body and actually telomere length is associated with our biological age. So that's essentially saying that stress is speeding the aging process. So it's, it's just critically important for patients to know this and again not to, to make them live in fear that you know oh I'm, I'm stressed and I don't, I don't uh, know how, you know that this is something that's going to lead to worse outcomes for me. It's acknowledging that you're stressed and there's so many things that you can do and this needs to be prioritized. So that's actually the direct effects. There's also the indirect effects, which is that stress will sabotage all good, healthy intentions. And when we talk about the mix of six, and we can get into this, there's a positive synergy that can happen. Uncontrolled stress is, is creating a negative synergy and changes the way you metabolize food, interferes with your relationships, disrupts sleep, makes you less interested in exercise, etc. And you've talked about this, I believe, before, that the state of mind that you're in has a huge impact on whether what you're eating is inflammatory or, or, or not, right? Yeah, there was actually a small, uh, well-controlled, randomized laboratory study looking at how stress modified how 
an individual processed food and the non-stressed individual eating an unhealthy meal had a similar uh, profile to a stressed person eating a healthy meal specifically looking at some of these you know the inflammatory response to that meal so by you know focusing on your diet and exercise which are the two pillars that people tend to go to right away and ignoring your stress um, you know yes do the diet and exercise but the benefits are going to be dramatically reduced if you ignore stress and this you know also is a very important point that Lorenzo is making because often we view uh, being overweight or obese as just a, you just need to work on your diet and maybe put in some exercise but this research shows that it's really far more complex than that and that you need to focus on the whole mix of six in order to address this area. I think that many of us are starting to address um, uh, you know, most of these uh, areas in some way or another. I think that certainly social well-being is something we should focus on more. As you mentioned, we talk a lot about diet and exercise and stress nowadays. And I think sleep is becoming something we're paying more attention to. Um, the one that I feel like we don't hit a lot is the last one, which is the environmental you know, aspects of health. You know, I don't feel like there's a lot of training. I don't feel like you have specialists in that area. Where do you think we can get that information? And do you think that's going to become uh, a part of healthcare in some way? Well, this the last area, the environmental exposures, is is probably the most challenging. It is it is the least well studied because, um, you know, for multiple reasons. And, and one of the challenges in this area is that what we're exposed to on a daily basis is often something that is classified as a carcinogen, meaning something that, that you know, a substance that actually causes cancer through DNA damage, for example. Uh, but we're exposed to such low doses that the industry says, you know, that it's not a big deal and it's nothing that needs to be regulated anymore. Now, the challenge is that we're never exposed to these chemicals in isolation, even though they're typically studied in isolation. We're exposed to hundreds of different chemicals, uh, both our carcinogens and endocrine disruptors. And albeit it's at a low level, we have no idea what long-term exposure means as well as, as the interaction between all these substances. One of the ways in which we recommend approaching this area is using what is called the precautionary principle, which is that you do not use a substance unless you know that it is safe to do so. Uh, this isn't always possible, but we certainly can control a lot of what we put on and in our bodies and what we have in our homes. So while we might not be able to control the greater, our greater exposure, we certainly can control what's happening uh, close by. And so there are many great resources like the Environmental Working Group, EWG, also, there are a number of apps, uh, for instance, Think Dirty, Shop 
clean, which will scan a barcode at a store and let you know the ingredients of that product, and then you can assess whether or not you want to purchase it. So it's really about becoming very mindful and looking at things from the top of your head to the tip of your toes and then going room by room in your home. Well, I mean, I know that we talk about this a lot, you know, nationally, especially in America, about how cancer is, you know, increasing in incidence. And this is a focus in terms of controlling not only uh, patient suffering and lives lost, but also cost in healthcare. Um, so there seems to be a lot of talk about it, but do you feel like a lot of this comes down to public health? You know, you talk about social well-being, you talk about environmental impact, nutrition, um, certainly. Um, you know, how can people move the needle on getting, um, getting you know, good nutrition and, you know, reducing some of these environmental exposures that, as you said, you know, may not even be something that you're you're choosing to be exposed to. So the the challenge that that we see in in the way current public health is being approached, and certainly what's being funded in the science is is really this still reductionistic approach, um, just trying to get people to lose weight. And in fact, I heard about this program this morning, watching the news about trying to get uh, African-American women in particular to lose weight because 50% uh, in our country are classified as obese uh, by just getting them to exercise more. 30 minutes a day, everyone get up and they were trying to create a support community and get your friends and, and that's great and that needs to happen. But just relying on one of the mix of six is ultimately going to fall short and then if you were to do an RCT for example of an exercise program for that community um, you would see that it's probably not going to result in a huge amount of weight loss and it will be short-lived and that's because they're not taking a, a more systems-based approach to this so if we look at you know obesity as a, a, an issue in our country as a whole and expanding around the world, um, it is linked with all of the mix of six. Um, it's not just about, you know, an energy exchange, eat less exercise more and you'll be fine. We know that sleep deprivation, which is, is prevalent around our world, is linked with excess weight. We know that endocrine disruptor exposure through our environment is linked with excess weight. We know that stress, again, is going to, at, at, at worst, just sabotage your, your good, healthy intentions around eating and exercise, sleep, etc. Um, so, you know, in, until, you know, and this is the argument we try and make in the book, we take this more, you know, systems-based approach and, and not just also individual willpower and if you just had better willpower you would be of the appropriate weight it's also looking at you know the environment that somebody is living in and enlisting you know big food and pharma and agriculture I mean it's it's a, an issue that is is going to take a concerted effort from uh, all facets of our population and at the moment it's all being done separate and in silos. So, you know, telling fast food chains that 
they need to just put calories up there. We know ultimately backfired in one of the companies um, showed individuals that they they took the calorie count and shared you know what thing on the menu was going to get you the most calories per dollar and that actually ended up being french fries so somebody who's on a tight budget who's concerned about calories they're going to eat the french fries because it's the cheapest thing on the menu to get your calorie intake so you know there needs to be a bigger discussion amongst all stakeholders in in the health of our country. Um, do you feel like that's where research is heading to more collaborative, you know, kind of a systems approach to um, integrative oncology instead of just looking at uh, one yoga practice or, you know, one dietary uh, intervention? Well, I wish I could say yes, but I, I don't tend to see that happening, um, and and it's it's hard to get funding for this kind of more system-based approach, the more comprehensive model. When a patient comes into our integrative medicine center, we don't just recommend that they should change one thing in their lives. Uh, when I was diagnosed with cancer over a year ago, I didn't look at each of my mix of six and, and say I'm just going to up my dose of one or two of them. I tried to increase and, and get to the right level each of the mix of six if I was short on any of them. So what was that like as somebody who you know has spent a lifetime researching stress and cancer and you know getting diagnosed and did you did you find that you you were reflecting on on your own kind of well being and where uh, where you might have had you know some things to shore up? The circumstances under which I received my diagnosis made it clear that that at least to to me and Allison that there was something you know that that I had to be paying more attention to the literally the day that that I received my diagnosis was the day that we signed off on the book it was the last version of the book and we said okay this is is ready for the printers um, that same day I received an email from the melanoma research alliance saying I'd been awarded a grant to more deeply study the link between lifestyle factors and melanoma and at that point they actually hadn't run all the deep pathology to know that the cancer that I had was melanoma. They knew that it was cancer, but they didn't know the the exact origins. Um, so, you know, I, you know, in, in reflecting on, you know, what I was doing, diet was was pretty great. My exercise habits, sleep was pretty good. Stress was uh, was was pretty out of control and did not have a regular stress management uh, practice. Yoga is part of my background in history and have practiced yoga over the years on and off. But for you know certainly the stressful two years of writing that book did not have um, a, a stress management strategy on board and. Melanoma is exquisitely sensitive to the immune system. It's what's called an immunogenic cancer, and of course that's 
how we know that and why we know that immunotherapy works so well for melanoma because it's harnessing the power of the immune system. So I knew uh, immediately that day I needed to uh, start to get the stress management component of the mix of six um, at the top of the list and, and get it on track. So how, how are you doing now? Well, so I, I, you know, one way to to up my dose of stress management was uh, to actually become a yoga certified yoga teacher. So I did a 200-hour yoga teacher training. Not that I'm going to quit my day job and become a yoga teacher, but <laughs> it meant that I had to have a regular yoga practice. And um, I'm now done with immunotherapy and technically. NED, no evidence of disease, but we both know with with uh, with cancer, uh, there is no such thing ultimately as as no evidence of disease because we all have these mutating cells in our body. So, you know, my job now with the mix of six is to you know up my game and to continue to maintain a body that is inhospitable to cancer growth. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you both for joining us today. This was just fascinating. And I could keep talking to you, but we're going to close this episode. And thank you. And I appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.